Welcome to Sex Spoken Here with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I am a sex coach and relationship psychologist and created this show to help you solve any sexual problems, learn about all things sexy, sensual, and intimate, and create your ideal lasting relationship. In my virtual therapy room, I answer questions, interview experts, and provide tips that you can use straight away. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies to help you create a problem-free, exciting sex life. Make sure you join us to be up to date on all events and to easily access coaching at www.the-intimacy-coach.com. Welcome to my virtual therapy room. I'm Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, and this is Sex Spoken Here. Today, we are beginning our discussion about non-monogamy. Joining me to explore this is Dr. Meg John Barker. They are a writer, therapist, and activist academic specializing in sex, gender, and relationships. Meg John is a senior lecturer in psychology at the Open University and a UKCP accredited psychotherapist and has over a decade of experience researching and publishing on these topics, including the popular books, Rewriting the Rules, The Secrets of Enduring Love, and Queer, A Graphic History. Welcome to the show, Meg John. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So can we start with Mm. a definition of non-monogamy? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it really means anything that's not monogamy. <laughs> so, and, and the reason for having that big umbrella term is there's a lot of different styles of non-monogamy. So I guess, um, I mean, globally, one of the most common ones is polygamy. Right. So, which is mostly takes the form of, um, so a man having multiple wives, but can take the form of a woman having multiple husbands. Um, so there's different versions of that globally. But then in more Western societies, uh, I guess the, the most common forms of non-monogamy would be swinging mm-hmm. um, and open relationships. Um, both of those are where a, a fairly main, fairly kind of couple relationship is open to people having sex with other people in some form. It might be together, it might be separately, um, but, it's, but, it, but they talk about it openly. And then polyamory would be the other really common one, which is where people have multiple um, romantic or sexual relationships. So, yeah. Yeah, those are the main. And then, of course, but of course, we those are consensual non-monogamies. Exactly. So, non-monogamies. Yeah, when we say non-monogamies, we're usually talking about the open, consensual, or ethical forms. Obviously, the most common form in um, in Western cultures is secret non-monogamy. Right. So you might make the distinction secret and open. And secret non-monogamy would be your affairs, infidelities, that kind of thing. So it's where the assumption is you are monogamous, but actually somebody's not being. And the statistics go up to about 50-60% of people at some point being secretly non-monogamous, whereas the open form, um, I think in the US-UK kind of context, we're looking at more like 5% of people. Really? Is it that low? I thought it was higher. I think 5, 10, it depends a bit how you measure it. Um, Yeah, and it depends on the community as well. Gay gay men, we're talking about 50%. Right. Um, Bisexuals, again, about 50%, whereas heterosexual people, maybe more like the 5%, and lesbians somewhere in between. And that's probably why, as a bisexual person, I thought it was higher. 
Yes, because a lot of people you meet in bio communities will be non-monogamous. Non yeah, worth remembering 50% are also monogamous because sometimes it's assumed that all bisexual people are non-monogamous, which is also a problematic assumption. So, Yes, get you into a lot of trouble if you don't <laughs> check that out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, one of the ways that I think this is interesting is that um, we used to look at sexual orientation as being heterosexual through to homosexual. And that was it. That was, those were your choices. And recently we've stopped really looking at it in that way. Some of us have started looking at different axes and and one of the axes is about power. So we're talking about from dominant to submissive. And one is from polyamorous to to monogamous. Yeah. I think the spectrum Mm -hmm. idea is a lot better on this one. And yeah, you're right. Like a lot of, a lot of key thinkers in sexuality are seeing it across multiple spectrums. So Sari Van Anders is a really good um, scientist in the, the States who's come up with the sexual configurations theory, which has the this dimension in it, I believe. Um, and yeah, so if we think about it, and I think the dimension is better because people often think about it as two boxes, you know, a bit like gay and straight. There could be two boxes, monogamous and non-monogamous. But just like with the gay straight one, that doesn't work because actually the, a significant minority or even majority of people will fall in between somewhere and certainly the most recent statistics suggest is that you know more like half of people fall in the middle somewhere and the same might be said here as well so what you get is that that you've got kind of um, really exclusive monogamy at one end of the spectrum maybe to the point where you're not even ha- allowed to have friends of the same gender as your partner it's you know very very kind of restrained constrained make you know flirting's not okay you know even maybe to the point like looking at porn or masturbating might be seen as not okay and then you kind of come along the spectrum to monogamous relationships that are a bit more relaxed about yeah you will have friends of you know all Mm -hmm. genders maybe you might it might be fine to flirt with somebody a little bit you know all of these things and then you get to the sort of what the dan savage is called monogamish relationships um, and also they've been called the new monogamy. So it's where it's a little bit open, might be open to kissing, might be open to some forms of sex, but not others. Might be up, you know, people up for having a threesome even, but not uh, not doing things separately. People have all different kinds of rules around this stuff. And then as you go along the spectrum, you get to more swinging and open relationships type things, uh, different forms of polyamory. And again, there's many different forms. So uh, one, you know, you've got hierarchical polyamory which often still has a kind of primary couple Mm -hmm. but they have other relationships and you've also got egalitarian um, polyamory which might be further along the spectrum which is where you know you have multiple relationships on the same level and there isn't really a couple model in there anymore and then you've also got solo poly which is where somebody sees themselves as their in a way their primary relationship and they might have other relationships too and then at the far end, you've got relationship anarchy or relationship queer, some people call it, which is where they're really starting to break down the concept of romantic relationships versus other kinds of relationships. So it's kind of saying all relationships in my life are important and I'm not really distinguishing like who I'm having sex with or not or who I'm romantic with or not. It's like I'm just uh, valuing all kinds of relationships. I would imagine that people find that harder to get their heads around than... Um a kind of a, some of the more couple-oriented mm. models. Um, in that some level ways, of- yeah. Although in some ways, some monogamous people are doing something quite similar to relationship anarchy if they're 
actually the most important people in their life are their friends right as their partner or their kids you know so you actually get some monogamous relationships which are very emotionally open to mm-hmm. other forms of closeness it's only maybe the sex bit that's monogamous and you they could end up looking rather similar actually to relationship anarchy yeah they might not describe it that way because they wouldn't no. have the term but that, but it would look similar which is interesting exactly and if you think about like quite popular TV shows like Sex and the City and Girls, you know, this yeah. and some rom-coms, and so they start to gesture in that direction of actually, hang on, isn't friendship like sometimes the closest bond that we have, you know, and often the romantic relationships might be the ones that come and go. So I think as a culture, we're beginning to shift a little bit in that direction. Which, which is interesting to me because it kind of looks more like um, village cultures previously yeah. where you had... It might have been a larger family group, but it, it might also have cl- included friends. But you had larger groups of people who you spent more of your time with. And the idea that you were isolated with one person and then maybe your progeny was was considered very strange. Yeah, that's right. Historically, this is pretty new, this idea that it's like the, the romantic couple is everything um, and the nuclear family that the sort of really small unit is is a very new thing and it's quite dangerous in some ways. Obviously, we know a lot of, you know, domestic violence and things happen within that context. Um, so the idea of a more open unit where there are, there's an extended family model, certainly the research on polyfamilies seems to suggest yeah. that, you know, like Elizabeth Sheff's work is finding that people where there's there's many kind of parental figures, it take you know, it eases the load on everyone, it brings in more money, it means kids have multiple role models. So it does seem to be quite a benefit to to models in that direction. Again, it doesn't have to be a non monogamous model. It could just be a model of shared parenting, for example. Well yeah, I mean, you know, I think about situations where you have um I have people that I'm not in relationship to. Um, but mm. I consider extended family, they're my chosen family as opposed to blood family. And there are also people that can yeah. share in the parenting of my child. You know, there are right. people that my son can go to that I know I can just leave it to them to handle whatever issue. And it does, it does, even mm. if it's not sharing the financial load in this instance, because we're at such a distance, this mm. idea that it particularly as kids approach adolescence, that, there are tr- lots of trusted adults that they can go yeah. and seek advice and hopefully trusted adults with some variety to the way they've chosen to live their lives so that they get a much better picture of what their options are. For That's me, right. I- a lot of people are going to that. And again, you get it more represented in the media. I think uh, Grey's Anatomy is one of my favorite shows and there's definitely the model of kind of a house with lots of people coming and going and everybody's welcome there and the kids have got multiple people. So, uh, you know, I think that's what a lot of polyamorous people are kind of going for more explicitly, but it is just happening anyway in a lot of people's lives. Um, and the more we can be open to that, the easier these transitions will be into step family arrangements, for example. Yes. You know, where it's not seen as a terrible thing that you're that one part of the relationship is changing, but you may be still fine to co-parent or still OK to cohabit, even if you're maybe not sexual anymore or not romantic, whatever that means. Yeah, and it gives, and I mean, it gives more outside the box solutions for dealing with those sorts of changes in relationship. Um, mm. And of course, when you look along this spectrum idea, you also look at things like sexual, sexuality, asexual, to hypersexual yeah. kind of dimension as well, and and all those things play into why somebody might want to share yeah. their needs amongst 
a group of people as opposed to focusing their needs onto one individual only. That's why I think the asexual spectrum is a really important one to throw in there. So, yeah, again, so a spectrum from having no sexual attraction at all to having a high, you know, and it means that there's much more potential for people to have close relationships with people they connect with without the extra pressure that that should also be a great sexual relationship. It could be that one of those people is asexual or at some point just stops being sexual or just the relationship stops being sexual over time, which, you know, plenty of them do. And that's okay because partners can get their sexual needs needs met in a different way, but their sexual needs don't necessarily need to be met in exactly the same place as their need for romance or their need for um, somebody to, to do domestic life with, you know, etc. And I think that's, that's, that's so important because it's the thing that people... When when people when you talk to the general public about non monogamy, they talk about the yeah. sex. That's what they're focused on. It's all about the sex. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but not about it's it's all about sex with multiple people. It's it's but what it's really about is getting your needs met in multiple places and, and increasing the probability that you can create a really happy, um, healthy environment for yourself because you're not reliant yeah. on one person to have the same set of needs that you do. Which is a continuous problem. That's right. I mean, I think people are in it for different reasons. I suppose it's important to say, like, some people are drawn to polyamory and open relationships, yeah, purely for sexual reasons or hedonistic reasons. And we shouldn't say there's anything wrong with that either. But, yeah, a lot of people are drawn to it more for a sense of, yeah, recognizing that then different needs get met in different relationships and that that's okay. And some people are in it for much more explicitly political reasons, for example, come into it from a feminist perspective of, you know, monogamy did kind of start from the perspective of the woman being in the home, you know, with doing unpaid labor to look after the man and also to look after the, the, the new workforce, which was the children. Um, so some of it's a kind of anti-capitalist and uh, feminist project. So really, yeah, different people have different motivations. Yeah, and it, it, it's, I, think it, I think it's much wider than people usually consider. Yeah, right. So um, in terms of looking at the spectrum, how do, how do people, do you see this as something like the other spectrums for me, people can move over their lifespan? So this isn't yeah. a point, you know? No, it's fluid. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I've moved the whole way along the spectrum, actually, in my own lifetime. So it's definitely possible to move. Um, so sometimes it's, yeah, it's kind of an experimental process of thinking, where do I fit and what am I drawn to? But also my hope is that the more people are aware of the spectrum, the more they won't feel, you know, they won't have periods where they feel they must, you know, fit in a certain box. So you can easily feel in our culture that you must be monogamous, for example, mm-hmm. that you must have a you know, happily ever after and find the one person and live with them forever and it's always going to be perfect, that kind of pressure. But equally, some people, when they find, say, the poly poly community, um, can feel like, well, I must do poly in this way because that's what the people around me are doing. Or, say, a gay man may feel he should be in an open relationship when actually polyamory might suit him better or monogamy might suit him better, but he's feeling that pressure because that's the way it's done in the gay community kind of thing. Yeah, no, I mean, for me, I've also moved a lot across the spectrum. I did monogamy for a while successfully um, for a short period. Um, I did it unsuccessfully for a longer period. <laughs> yeah. Where I don't mean that I was out messing about. I was, I was very unhappy with it. You know? It was just very unsuccessful yeah. for me. Um, but, but I noticed that that was one of the things for me that was so interesting in looking at the, the 
the heterosexual to homosexual branch dimension, um, which was yeah. that how much movement I've had over my lifetime, move a little bit this right. way, move a little bit back to center, move a little bit the other way. And how liberating mm-hmm. it was to discover that that was considered okay and acceptable and usual that people actually learn and grow and move over the course yeah, of their exactly. life in all again, of these dimensions. The research in this area is so new. It's only in the last, because I've been studying this area for over a decade now, mm-hmm. and it's only really in the last five years that people are really starting to study um, and write about sexual fluidity and the fact that people aren't fixed. You know, it's been so assumed by science that people are fixed in a specific sexual orientation, you know, even relationship orientation. And actually now there's much more recognition that, that it can be fluid. Although, of course, it's also important to say it's not fluid for everyone. Some people, it very much feels like something that's fixed from quite a young age and doesn't change. And that's also OK. And that just because some people are fluid doesn't mean that we extrapolate that out to say now we need to mold people into if they're fluid, yeah. they can get rid of it. Right. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's the other that's the other dangerous. Yeah. You shouldn't conclude that just because some people are fluid, that means fluid is better. And you shouldn't conclude that because some people are fluid, it means we can actually force people to change because the fluidity doesn't seem to work like that. It doesn't seem to work that way that you could make yourself be somewhere on that spectrum. You know, so it is definitely really hard for people who aren't, who don't really feel poly, but who maybe feel like they should try and be to suit a partner. You know, that that can be really hard. You know, it can work, but it can be really hard. So, it yeah, generally speaking, it does not work to try and convert people to either either to be more normative or to be less normative. Yeah. It, it, but it's so fascinating for, for reasons I've never been able to figure out why people think we can, that we can fix it, yeah. right? That it's that attitude that we can fix it. I have so many people come in um, and, I, and because I say that I deal with non-monogamy, it attracts yeah. this, which I'm fine with. But I have so many people come in where one person is non-monogamous and the other person right. is either not or unsure or unclear, doesn't want to be. Um, and it's about, can we fix this? Can we make this yeah. person? Yeah. The stated right. goal is to make the, the monogamous person non-monogamous. And it's like, no, no, but that's yeah. not what we do here. You know, we don't make anybody anything. We explore to see what's think, possible. Exactly. And I think a lot more mainstream therapists get the other way of like somebody, probably somebody having, who has affairs or is unfaithful and they're trying to make that person monogamous. And again, it's not, you know, generally speaking, that's not going to work. Um, and it can work to have, you know, maybe it is partly about recognizing different people have different needs. So I do know some monopoly relationships mm-hmm. that work well because it's accepted that one person in there is monogamous and one person is polyamorous and it's okay for them both to be that rather than trying to force one of them to change. But obviously that, that does involve a lot of empathy of being able to get that the other person sees the world in quite a different way and is going to do things that might feel quite painful at times. But hey, that's relationships, you know, even if both of you are monogamous, you're still going to cause each other pain sometimes, you know. And, and yeah, and I think that that's also something that people don't consider because we have that model, you know, that happily ever yeah. after, you know, and you meet the right <laughs> yeah. person and you walk into the sunset and it's, there it is, static forever. When, of course, yeah. nothing affects for the rest of your life with just that one person. It's yeah. going to be totally easy, totally fine. Never going to have a crossword. <laughs> really? Yeah, that, that would be interesting. 
My parents mm-hmm. were married for, let's see, 55 years. They were together for yeah. 57. Um, there were lots of crosswords. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Yeah. I think it's a really, it's such a dangerous message. I mean, this is what I write about in most of my books. It's such a dangerous mm-hmm. message to tell people that they should be having these perfect relationships. It's just, you know, no, that's not going to happen. No. And I mean, but because also we don't talk then about communicating and about what's necessary to figure out your own needs and um, which seems yeah. to be a bad word to suggest that you actually have to figure your needs out. Yeah, it's all supposed to be kind of done, you know, telepathically or, you know, just everyone's supposed to just do it without having to think about it or work on it at all. Um, That's why I like this idea of more intentional or conscious relationships. Again, it doesn't matter where they are on that spectrum, but it's about really tuning into yourself and thinking, what are you looking for for relationships? And also thinking a bit critically about what messages you've received about relationships and thinking, yeah, which ones of these do I actually go along with and which ones am I just feeling pressured to to do it a certain way when I actually that's not how I want to do things and we're seeing people do things so differently in so many areas now like a lot of people are choosing not to cohabit for example mm-hmm. or a lot of people are choosing to yeah have really different parenting um, plans so I think the more we can go towards that the better for people because they can find the way of doing it that suits them rather than feeling pushed into you know having to live with somebody when actually they really don't work very well that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are sort of really successful um, monogamous marriages with people living in separate houses that would not exactly. be successful if they lived in the same home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I relate to that. I mean, you know, if, if you're somebody who likes a significant time on your own and yeah. likes your own space, it's very difficult to, to share it in the way that it, yeah. you do when you share it with another partner. It's different. Yeah. Than having roommates and stuff it's such an intimate thing it can be incredibly difficult to actually make it through that process and and share that space and it can have really negative impacts on the relationship by just for that one thing yeah but people are so shamed because they feel like that's an inevitable part of being together and if they can't do it it means there's something wrong with them but that's not necessarily the case at all you know there's definitely there's so many different ways of living and organizing living situations um again just opening it up and as soon as we open these things up and say actually all of these things are okay you know actually it's okay to be anywhere on this monogamy spectrum anywhere on this cohabiting spectrum anywhere on this asexual to sexual spectrum then suddenly the pressure's lifted and you're just like, okay, where am I on that spectrum? And then it's totally fine if you're in a different place to your partner, you know, that it's no one's right and no one's wrong. It's just like, okay, let's, let's look at that. Do you think that um, by doing that and getting people in that mindset that people then make better choices about partners? Yeah, I think I think then you can actually slow it down at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Again, another big kind of mythology we have around relationships is sort of like falling in love, you know, the thunderbolts, it's just gonna, you know, happen to you. And then you have to go along with it. You know, you have to kind of, if you've fallen in love, then you have to go up the relationship escalator, as people have been calling it. So you have to then date, get, you know, you have to get together, you have to then uh, cohabit, get married, have kids. And actually, it's about just putting all of that, I think, you you know, useful to to slow all of that process down. And yeah, just because you have awesome sexy feels about somebody doesn't necessarily mean you have to act on them you know you could just take it slowly and see whether you're connected and whether you really both want to do that and then even if you do act on it doesn't mean you have to do all those other things you know it could be just left at that it could end up being friends with benefits for example or you know uh, it doesn't have to 
follow that specific trajectory. Where do you think um, those younger than us are getting these messages now? Because certainly we didn't learn this when we were coming up. It was sort of, <laughs> yeah, we didn't get any of this. I feel like they're still getting, still the same messages are out there. Yeah. As I say, if you, I think I'm, I'm a big fan of rom-coms, TV and movies, and I'm watching a lot of them at the moment, you know, because I'm always trying to think, well, what, what kind of messages are there? And I feel like they are shifting a little bit, as I said. I think there's a, a bit of a shift towards valuing friendship more, a bit of a shift towards recognizing there's different ways of doing things. But there's still that strong, you know, sort of boilerplate, just sort of, you know, template of this is the, this is the normal script and anything out there that isn't that and needs commenting on almost because it's different because it's weird you know it's it would be a big thing to do it differently um and i think that's that's what we need to shift from just to the sense that actually there's multiple possible scripts you know and actually it's about writing your own script because it's going to be as unique as your fingerprint you right know? right and, yeah. and that's one of the things that i that i i it's kind of one of my passions to see kids actually get that message that, yeah. you know, here is the wide variety that's out there. Look, look, you can do this in so many different ways. And the, Precisely. the first step is to figure out who you are before yeah. you go do this. Um, that's why I really like, yeah, my, my colleague, Justin Hancock, who I just wrote this book with and Joyce Axe. Um, so he, he does this kind of work with young people at Bish UK, which is his website. But he's also just worked with Jurex on a whole sex and relationship education program, Fabulous. which I'm hoping to roll out in the UK. Um, you know, it's, it, we're really hoping that schools will get on board with this because it absolutely it talks about relationship diversity, sexual diversity and gender diversity in that way, exactly the way we've been describing of, look, there are lots of ways of doing this and all of them are OK. Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm often frustrated because I've got a 14, a 14, almost 15 year old boy and I'm often frustrated with the messages that he's given. And of course, living in the family he lives in, his message, he's been taught completely differently because we're yeah. all alternative. But um, the way that they taught things in school, the way they dealt with things, even when they finally got around to talking about relationships, they talked about anatomy and sex a couple of years before mm -hmm. they talked about relationships, which <laughs> was like, okay. Another wrong way around. Yeah. But even when they got yeah. around to it, and they did talk about the fact that not everybody's heterosexual, probably yeah. some of us jumped up and down and said, you best talk about this <laughs> because I already yeah. know that there, that, you know, that you know that there are young people, statistically, there must be some people within this yeah. group that are not. Um, yeah. And so they, they did do that, but it's such a stilted manner with mm. so little information to actually it. So it's, it isn't presented as, Hey, guess what? There's all these things out there and you, they're all okay, so you don't have to do it in a particular way. Yeah. It's still so stilted and so yeah. tight, you know. And, and often still with the, here's, here's the normal way. And here's the and other then, way. <laughs> yeah, here's, like, you know, we'll spend a lot of time on the heterosexual monogamous relationship and, and then we'll mention that the same sex relationships and we'll mention that there's non-monogamy very briefly rather than just that spectrum idea is so much more helpful, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, it just it just says we're all diverse. You know, it's not that there's norm and abnorm. It's just that there's complete diversity. I mean, I always say when people ask me questions about normality is normality. Normal is a statistical term. 
It has, it's, yeah. it's, it's mathematical and it's about average. And yeah. that's, so it actually doesn't really mean anything other than right now, if I compare you to a particular group, do you fall in the average for yeah. that group? Exactly. And actually, if we were to take that understanding of normal, which is the correct understanding, then most people are non-monogamous. Right. You know, most people globally are polygamous and most people in Western culture are secretly non-monogamous. So which even if we were we're all normal, normal and they're not. <laughs> exactly. It's not what I want to say. Yeah, exactly. Of which course is not, not. But not creating a new hierarchy, but you know, actually that is the and same same with animals. You know, there's very few monogamous animals. I mean, it's yeah. just an interesting thing to to kind of play with that because no, it isn't hierarchical, but it's sort of yeah. there's so much made of that as being and particularly unfortunately it, it a lot of that is about religion yeah and it's very bound up in that and so people end up feeling excluded from religion as a result but there's so much made of that this is yeah. you know god's plan it's one man one woman and this is how it is yeah and you stay together yeah. forever and this is how it is that that actually when you look at it mathematically and you realize oh the norm uh -huh. is actually non-monogamy. Yeah. That can be just a sense of relief in and of itself. Yep, I think so. And then knowing that, that makes it easier not to be part of the, the normative group that's that's being secretly non-monogamous. Yeah. It makes it easier to choose to be ethical about it because yeah. it's not such a weird and different thing. It's not such a such an amazingly big ask that has, has yeah. um, uh, shame for the other person. And, you know, you can take all of that away by, by presenting it as a spectrum. Yeah, I think so. It's a completely mm. different way of looking at it. And yeah. uh, presumably shame is one of the bigger issues in not doing it that way. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, that, well, it, there's so much, the, the sense that you have to be secret and that you have to hide it. Um, is gonna is gonna cause a lot of shame for a lot of people. I mean, I think there are people who who just do. It depends culturally as well. You know, there has been some work about how different cultures have very different attitudes towards affairs. So I guess again, it's a spectrum. From right. there is a kind of don't ask, don't tell version where everyone kind of assumes everyone else is doing it, but they just don't talk talk about it. You know, through to that level of actually deep shame and thinking you're doing something wrong, but you can't seem to help yourself doing it. It's funny. Um, I, I'm polyamorous. And before I divorced my ex-husband, mm. we had been separated for a long time, co-parenting, same house. Before I divorced him, I began a relationship with my current. And um, yeah. I decided I needed to speak to my parents because my son was talking about my current. And they would ask, who is that? And so this would get very complicated very quickly. Yeah. So I decided to talk to my parents about it. And their reaction surprised the hell out of me. They would have mm. preferred that we had an affair. They no. were highly no. uncomfortable no. with the fact that this was all in the open. And my father, okay. tried, my father actually tried to argue that this was going to be worse for my child. This was going to damage my child that this was open. Yeah. And my father was a was quite a logical man, so I kind of played out mm -hmm. his thinking with him. Yeah, and said, so "How can you think that showing a child that deception and lies is the, the way you should run yeah. a relationship is better is is more healthy 
than having something honest. And, you know, he eventually said, okay, maybe you're right. But it took ages. It boggles me that people still haven't got that message that secrets and, and, and hidden stuff is really bad for kids. It's a, you know, yeah. it's like we know from a long time, you know, that kids pick up on that stuff and it's really, it really does a number on their mental health if there's secrets in the Indeed. family. Um, but still, but also I, I, that, that what you're saying about how, that idea that affairs are somehow uh, better. I, I, my experience with this was when my, my work on polyamory got picked up by the media about 11 years ago. Um, it was a massive thing. It was really quite hard to go through to see myself in all of the newspapers um, because they outed me as polyamory and they thought they thought a polyamorous academic was like the most exciting thing to write a story about. And I was just like, really? <laughs> what? Um, but I, the piece that I remember the most was saying it said that, that me and my co-researcher were taking all of the fun out of affairs you know it that was how they put it it was like affairs are great they're fun they're sexy and this is making it all very boring and all very po-faced you know and i was like wow that's goodness me you know with a complete lack of understanding as to how damaging the breach in trust is because yeah. that's, I mean, you know, it was like, I, and that was the same thing I couldn't understand when I was having this conversation with them. I'm like, don't you get, there's no trust breach here. Right. But everybody is on board for this. Everybody understands what's going on. Yeah. And so nobody has to fight or argue or feel like they've been, you know, betrayed or any of these things. Because yeah. we talk about, you know. Mm -hmm. And somehow secrecy mm -hmm. was better. But it seems to be that a lot of that is about how the rest of the world sees you rather than actually about how the players yeah. feel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's, it's so it's so entrenched in our culture, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, so much drama would actually be impossible if we move to a, an ethically non-monogamous culture, because so many of the movies we watch, you know, the books we read, the whole tension is somebody being in love with two people yeah, or somebody being with the part, you know, already married. The film I watched last night, somebody's already married, but they fall in love with somebody else. What on earth are they going to do? It's like suddenly all of the Hollywood movies are not going to get made. You know, all of the romance novels are not going to get written <laughs> because they're all based on this, uh, this idea that you can't love two people at once or that you, you know, if you do, you know, if you are in an existing relationship, you're going to have to break it up if you fancy somebody else. It's, you know, this complete baseline that we're, so we are questioning something very fundamental, I suppose. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, that idea that you can't love two people at once is always a fascinating one for me because then I say to people, well, what about yeah. your kids? If you have more than one kid, yeah. can you not love two kids or four kids or six kids? You have to love one right, more than right. the other. And they go, oh, no, 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 that's different. Why? Yeah, that's different. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yeah, it's and, and of course, in my experience, jealousies and things aren't about loving another person. They're about time and yeah, activities. Time. Yeah. You know? And so it, it's just fascinating to watch the way people portray this as something so impossible and so foreign. Yeah. And I think it's necessary, you know, in a way you have to, it has to be portrayed in that way because otherwise the question, you know, the obvious question is why, why aren't people doing it? So you need to be able to say, you know, if you're monogamous and you hear about polyamory and, you know, you don't want to risk trying that, then you have to say to yourself, well, it would be impossible or, uh, you know, I'd get too jealous or all of these things. But, and, and, you know, it is, it, it is a fair, 
it is it is a, a big leap to be doing something outside of what's considered normal i mean there's no yeah. legal protection for example um so you can understand why people would be scared but i think it scares them on an even more fundamental level of just like going against this cultural norm is a frightening I, thing i think you're right and i think that uh, that when you see people who are different on a number of the spectrums, it becomes easier to be different on a second spectrum because you're yes. already doing yeah. that on the first one. So you've already kind of, you're already. Yeah. You've made, you've made that as, um, yeah. Although it, the flip side is you can be multiply marginalized then. So it can be yeah. quite a, a heavy weight, a heavy burden to carry. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think people think of that in advance. They find that out no. afterwards. Yeah, too late. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 and I think that people are, you know, all those intersectionalities can be quite diff difficult to manage. Um, yeah. And there is still no protection in our culture if you choose non-monogamy. You, yeah. you can only yeah. have one one wife or one husband. That's it. Yeah. That's all that's allowed. That's There's no legal protection. Although it would, it's also worth saying that I think um, Nathan Rambucana is a, a Canadian scholar who studied this and found that it's even worse for immigrants. You know, so if you're from a polygamous culture and you move to Canada or to the UK or, or US and you're trying to maintain a polygamous way of doing things, you're, you're even way more um, barriers are put in your way and you face deportation, whereas those cultures can can kind of handle polyamory even though they don't have legal rights for it they won't they won't actually demonize you as badly as if you're from an immigrant um, that's group. interesting yeah because mm -hmm. so it's it then doubled often with islamophobia for example right. or racism um or you know just anti-immigrant sentiment yeah it was interesting i did an article for um <clears throat> the museum of human sexuality on non-monogamy and in my research, yeah. I hadn't realized how much polyandry there is. Yeah. There interesting. are lots of cultures where it's one woman, many men. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most of them like Tibet and um, yeah. out in Asia. But I had no idea until I started yeah. looking at it um, that there were still. And all, different models. and all different models as well. So it's, yeah, again, you might have, you know, a Western mindset might assume, well, you know, polygamy is this one thing and it's always works in the same way. But no, it's as diverse as we've been talking about, um, you know, non-monogamous are in Western culture, at least as diverse as that. Yeah, which is which I think is fascinating. It's amazing. Yeah. It's always amazing to me how much there is and how many different mm. ways. It's like you said earlier about a fingerprint, you know, your your way of being in this, your sexuality, yeah. your gender choice your way of being on all these dimensions is really as individual as a fingerprint. Exactly. It's like we've got all these categories and you can kind of find your way to, oh, this one fits me the best. But even once you're in that one, the, your particular individual way of doing it in your own relationships is going to look differently to other people's. Um, for example, I, you know, in the zines that I've been making that are kind of helping people to figure out um, there's one called make your own um, relationship user guide and it's about yeah. figuring out you know how to do relationships and it's you know again you can see as a part okay even once you've decided you're polyamorous for example uh, you know where are you going to be at on the spectrum of disclosure you know are you going to be at the don't ask don't tell end or are you going to be at the tell them everything end also where are you going to be at on a spectrum of contract you know do you mm -hmm. want a really explicit contract of how you're going to do everything or are you going to be very flexible and it's just everyone's free to do whatever they want or somewhere in the middle and you know there's many of these spectrums that you can kind of break it down 
like how how enmeshed you want to be with other people. You right. Know, do you want, you want to, to know all, all of it? Yeah. Do you want it to be really quite separate? And yeah. as you said, cohabiting. You know, just just yeah. It's it's a lot of different multiple dimensions within each one. So where you end up is going to be there's going to be no one else quite quite, quite like you. And and it makes yeah. from relationship to relationship as yeah. in. Like if you are in a marriage, for example, and you decide that you're polyamorous in the marriage, if the marriage itself ends yeah, and you don't pick up another kind of very central partnership, you may do it completely mm -hmm. different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I have to say, yeah. I absolutely love the zines that you've been doing. I love, I love that. Mm -hmm. And I love the how to have sex because I, it's, it's unique in that it's giving people the opportunity to actually peel a lot of the layers off of this mm -hmm. and, and construct something that's wholly yeah. their own. And a lot of what's out there tends not to do that. It, it, it will describe, it will depict, but there's mm -hmm. no sense in which you get to do, do the construction. I know. And I think it's because self-help has kind of been built on this idea that we should be providing solutions to people and there should be a one, one size fits all solution. Yeah. So you know, that's how self-help books are kind of sold. Whereas for me, it's like, well, no, the fundamental assumption is that different things work for different people and at different times in their lives. So all a self-help book can do is provide a kind of roadmap of how to figure out where you are. Like yeah. that's, you know, that should be the aim. So it's a really different starting point, I suppose. It um, is. And it makes a different kind of book really. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, and I think from my perspective, much easier to access. Yeah, I think for some people, it's probably a little bit more scary, but they're so accessible that that even if it's a bit more scary, you can do something with it. Hopefully, I try and make it quite friendly. Like, yeah. Oh, no, I think you succeeded that. I think, you're, I think you're quite user friendly. And, and um, I, I try that out on people who are not like me, who understand the yeah. subject and stuff. You know, I mean, I'm quite happy to give your stuff to clients because they are quite user-friendly and they can go and take it away and, and actually work their way yeah. through it however they want. So um, it's useful. And the information on where you can find these things will be on the website with this podcast. Um, so right. we um, leave it th here. We're going to continue talking. So there'll be another discussion next week that'll deal with the practicalities. So yeah. this feels like kind of a nice stopping point for dealing with the overview. Mm -hmm. so thank you so much for joining us thank you for joining me this week for sex spoken here with dr Lori beth bisbee and met john barker write to me with suggestions for the show questions you want answered at dr bisbee at the dash intimacy dash coach.com follow me on twitter where my handle is dr bisbee for a free 30-minute strategy session with me, go to www.the-intimacy-coach.com and click on the button that says Schedule Now. I look forward to seeing you next week for part two of this discussion. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to Sex Spoken Here with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review here on iTunes or on Stitcher and make sure you head over to www.the-intimacy-coach.com to subscribe for free newsletter updates to help you create and sustain an exciting trouble-free 
sexual life. Stay tuned for upcoming weekly episodes on all topics, sexy, sensual, and intimate. Thanks for listening.